The talk this evening is on untying the knots. Coming to inner wholeness, inner completeness, is very much a process of untying the knots that limit us, that restrict us, that confuse us. And that coming to inner wholeness is to me the essence of the spiritual life. And it's our wholeness which enables us to live in a relationship to the rest of our lives, a relationship of understanding, of sensitivity and integrity. This whole term or concept of wholeness may seem one which is somewhat vague or in need of clearer definition. By inner wholeness, I mean to convey a way of being inwardly in which we're clearly connected with our own resources of power, of balance, of strength, and of understanding, and can live in a way in which we can rely upon those resources and yet have a corresponding openness and sensitivity to the challenges and messages that life brings to us. In a wholeness is a way of living without fragmentation, without division inwardly. It's a vision of our own being, a vision of our own potential, which is based upon our own experience and understanding, which is based upon our capacity to listen to ourselves. And it is that wholeness inwardly which has the power to bring to an end distorted, relationships of dependency. It is wholeness which has the power to bring to an end conditioned images and identities of who we are. And wholeness which has the power to bring to an end division and alienation both outwardly and inwardly. That inner wholeness is really a sense of inner freedom, a cessation of limitation and all of the conflicts that limitation brings to our lives. It is that sense or vision of freedom inwardly that also brings freedom and integrity and understanding to every area of our lives, our social interactions, our political involvements, our relationships. It's a freedom which brings about an end of division, essentially through insight and through understanding. It's so important in our lives that we're able to set aside our fantasies or our wishes that there is someone or something that's going to come along on a shining steed and deliver us from confusion or conflict or pain and recognize, really recognize that it is our own understanding is our own capacity to be in, in touch with ourselves. It's our own capacity to fulfill our own potential and actualize that in our lives that's going to bring an end to conflict, to pain, to limitation. Inner freedom, and a freedom which is actualized outwardly, is the essence of spirituality. And that freedom is not a state to be achieved. It's not a goal to be attained. 
Rather, it's a way of being inwardly, which is awakened out of its dormant state, through our untying of the knots that limit and distort our vision of who we are. Look at some of those knots. What are the knots that limit us? What are the knots that confuse or restrict us? Certainly they're the knots of mistaken images and identities, the knots of fear, insecurity, and anxiety, which lead us to create limited descriptions of ourselves that we believe in, the knots of destructive and undermining patterns that repeat themselves in our lives and that distort our relationships to others and to ourselves, the knots of opinions, of reactions, of standpoints that lead us to erect barriers, defenses, to hide behind, and also to divide ourselves from others through. The primary knot is not just all of the contents of our minds that we experience or the contents of our conditioning, but the primary knot is our belief that all of this is the truth or the reality of who we are. Many of the knots, confusions that we experience are created through conditioning. And conditioning is something that we are exposed to from the moment of our birth. Some of the conditioning we experience is imposed upon us. Some of the conditioning we experience we adopt quite willingly. Some of the conditioning we experience is based upon our own experience of life and of ourselves. All of that conditioning leads us to see things, to see ourselves in a static, in a frozen, in a fixed or rigid way. And those frozen or distorted images that we adopt influence our relationship to life, influence our relationship to ourselves. We need to understand what conditioning is, because certainly it is something that we all experience and something that we all carry. Conditioning is an experience, a message, an interaction, which makes a deep impression upon our minds, upon our feelings. It can be a painful impression, it can be a pleasant impression. Those impressions, if they are powerful, become locked into ourselves. They become a way of seeing. They become a basis for a particular perception of life or ourselves, which has taken to be reality. And on the basis of our conditioning, the basis of the variety of conditioning we're exposed to, we construct. We construct our views, we construct our opinions, we construct our attitudes, we construct our identities, we construct our images of ourselves. Because of our particular conditioning, we find ourselves perhaps striving for some things in life, avoiding others. Because of our particular conditioning, we find ourselves adopting particular roles, particular identities in life, and not others. 
Because of conditioning, we find ourselves valuing some things as being significant and important and rejecting other things as being insignificant. This whole influence of conditioning is like the building blocks through which we construct the house that we live in. And because of the differences in our conditioning, we all inhabit, in some ways, apparently very different houses, very different ways of seeing ourselves, very different ways of seeing the world. And conditioning is certainly all-pervasive. It is one aspect of conditioning that becomes very apparent to us, how pervasive it is. But whether we learn from the impressions that we're exposed to, or whether we are just conditioned and overwhelmed by them, it's very much a question of our own willingness to question, our own willingness to explore, our own willingness to look at the impact of the impressions that we are exposed to. On the basis of our conditioning, we also construct our value systems and our life directions are essentially based upon our value systems. Often the way we think, the way we act, the way we, we relate, our choices are based upon our value systems. Our conditioning not only influences our life directions, the choices we make, but it also influences our capacity to actually fulfill them, just as it influences our own self-image. And obviously our self-image is directly related to our capacity to utilize our own resources in a creative, in a dynamic way. There's a few examples perhaps to clarify it. Someone who grows up in an environment where tremendous emphasis is placed upon success, a home environment, a social environment, a work environment, where a tremendous emphasis is placed upon success. Through that exposure to that environment and the impression that it makes upon the mind, then success is often equated with having, with gaining, with winning, which in turn is equated with being better. And that value system and that exposure to that conditioning obviously influences the image of that person, the direction that they choose in life, the sense of they, themselves that they have through their measuring of themselves, through their capacity to win or to lose. Someone who grows up in a rather loveless, uncaring environment, through that exposure, the impression that that environment makes upon their minds, comes to see themselves and the world in a particular way, that the world perhaps is threatening, hostile, aggressive, that they are perhaps weak, powerless. And then, of course, all life directions, values, aspirations, and capacity to fulfill is totally influenced, or in many ways influenced, by the impact of that conditioning. And, of course, the degree of influence that conditioning has is directly related to our own degree of awareness of it. We experience the destructiveness of conditioning, the limitation that it brings to our lives, that any static, frozen, locked way of seeing 
prevents openness. It prevents change, it prevents learning. That any static way of seeing of ourselves suffocates our potential to be whole. Because, simply because of our belief in that conditioning. Not because we don't have the potential to be whole, to be free, but because the belief in the conditioning is stronger than the trust in that potential to be free. The other aspect of conditioning that becomes very apparent is just how very powerful conditioning is. Just how very powerful the influence of our conditioning is. No doubt all of us have found ourselves in the position of making resolutions to be different, to change, to live or to relate or to act differently. And how many times again and again simply finding those resolutions failing. Probably all of us have had the experience of finding that we have particular patterns or tendencies in our lives of relating either outwardly or inwardly and really disliking those patterns really not feeling any affinity with the way we react or the way we relate in a particular situation, and yet feeling almost powerless to bring about change in those ways of action. Probably all of us have perhaps have found ourselves in our lives having particular aspirations that we would like to fulfill. That yes, I would like to do this, or I would like to be this, or I would really like to explore something, and yet finding that there remains this gap between our aspirations and our actualities, and that it seems very difficult to even find the way to fulfill the aspirations or, or the intentions that we have. Resolutions and willpower and foreseeing, certainly not paths that bring about the end of conditioning in any way. The end of conditioning, in the sense not of erasing it, but in the sense of neutralizing the power of conditioning, needs to come through understanding and through trust in our own experience. Because if there's no trust in our own experience, there's no power to actually transcend conditioning. The essence of meditation, of spirituality, this coming, discovering, this freedom, this wholeness that is within us. And the ingredients for fulfilling that potential, certainly transcending the limitations of conditioning. And limitation is what conditioning does to us. Limitation is a basic expression of negative conditioning. Limitations created through conditioning simply because we become rather blind to our own potential. Through conditioning, through our particular way of seeing ourselves, we tend to construct images of who we are. We can tend to construct descriptions or labels or identities of who we are. And when we look within ourselves and see ask ourselves the question of who are we? Who do we really think we are? Who do we feel that we are? Often we come up with an image, and when we look at our images, so often our images are constructed through isolating a particular quality within ourselves. 
You know, if you've had the experience in the past in relationship of fear, of anxiety, of feeling powerless, then it's very easy and so quickly the mind does isolate that quality and create a particular image on the basis of it. If we found ourselves being angry, being defensive, it's so easy for the mind to kind of zero in on that particular quality and construct an image out of it. And when we construct an image, of course we don't see the totality of ourselves. We become very blind to the totality of ourselves. And also our abilities, our own inner capacities, our own inner resources are very minimally utilized. Because images basically drains energy. Images and limited identities basically suffocate energy and suffocate effectiveness. A negative conditioning, and certainly any image is an expression of negative conditioning, is, I feel, a real handicap in terms of coming to inner wholeness. And the absurdity of it is that so many of our images have nothing to do with the present, or very little to do with the present. So often we, are, we carry these images with us that have to do with experiences and impressions that were made upon our own consciousness, our vision of ourselves, a long, long time ago. A particular painful experience, a particular traumatic experience, or a series of them, leading us to have a foundation or a vision of ourselves which is limited and restricted. And so often, so little, so really little to do with the present. It's like we carry this kind of excess baggage and continue carrying it, even though there's no need to carry it any longer. Somehow there isn't the trust to put down the burden. It's like someone who's going on a train and they make the trip to the train station carrying their suitcases and they get on the train carrying their suitcases and the train goes and they're still holding on to their suitcases. In so many in similar ways with our own images, our own identities, we carry them and carry them, not realizing that there needs to come a point in our lives when we can put down the burdens. And that there is a capacity within ourselves of openness, of understanding, of awareness, that potential within ourselves that allows us to put down the excess baggage. And there is so often those burdens and those baggage from the past that prevent or suffocate that sense of inner freedom in the present. Untying the knots of conditioning does involve looking at the present in relationship to the past. It does involve looking at the models, the experiences, the impressions that have made a powerful impression upon us in the past and realizing and acknowledging the effects of that experience. Realizing, acknowledging the effects of the past in terms of our sense of who we think we are in the present. It also means looking at the expression of limitation in the present. If we're going to untie the knots of conditioning, then we need to be able to look clearly at the present, look at the way limitation expresses itself in our lives, 
Look at the roles we assume. Look at the images that we have of ourselves. Look at the life directions we choose. Are they an expression of freedom? Are they an expression of trust in ourselves? Are they an expression of fulfilling our potential as a woman, as a human being? Are they an expression of fear? It also means looking at the present, looking at the impressions, the experiences that we're being exposed to, that we are exposing ourselves to in the present. Are those impressions ones which are really conducive to nurturing a sense of freedom and trust in our lives? Or is our present experience, the directions we've chosen, undermining that trust, undermining that sense of freedom? We are surrounded in the present by values, by models, by authorities, by impressions. And so many of those models that surround us are constantly sending us messages. Messages of who we should be, messages of what we should think, messages of what we should become. And if we seek for approval and acceptance, then those messages carry for us a lot of power. If there is fear within us, then not conforming to those messages or those demands means risking rejection, risking disapproval. And fear, the threat of fear, is often lurking behind the messages that we receive. If we don't become this, if we don't do this, if we don't think in a particular way, then there is a very real possibility of disapproval, of rejection. And so those messages that we are surrounded by of who we should be, how we should think, what we should become, are charged messages. And they carry a tremendous amount of power still. And many of the messages that we're exposed to, although they are beginning to change, are still very static. And look at who we would be if we bought totally into the messages that we still receive in a very direct way from our culture. Hmm? We would be the pretty, nice, clean little girl in the little dress who suddenly grows up and changes into some promising sex symbol, who changes a little bit more and has a little adventure in the world to broaden her understanding and then settles down and in and through all those changes, essentially has cotton wool between her ears. <laughs> and those messages, they're beginning to change. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of support for those change. And there are many, many women who are still just refusing to buy into those messages, recognizing the knots that they create within ourselves, recognizing how destructive those messages are and how destructive the presence or the threat of fear is in our lives in dictating who we are in the present. Refusing to buy into those messages because perhaps recognizing that the reward for conformity is safety and it is protection 
and it is on some level security. But often the price of conforming to particular models, particular expectations or particular demands, the price that we pay is dullness, is anger and is resentment. Untying the knots of conditioning, both from the past and from the present, means very much confronting fear. It means very much being willing to take risks. It means very much being willing at times in our lives to be alone in a positive, in a creative way. It means being willing to let go very clearly our need for approval, our need for acceptance through conformity. Sometimes untying the knots involves grief and it involves anger. But certainly untying the knots involves awareness because we can't even begin to untie the knots of conditioning and the knots that limit us unless we are aware, clearly aware within ourselves that they are present and what they are. That awareness comes through listening inwardly, through seeing that any image, any description can never be a description of the totality of ourselves. And realizing that any image and any description is a very poor substitute for freedom. And if we find that there is repeated conflict happening in our lives, if we feel that find that there is repeated frustration, resentment, then those feelings are messages inwardly that are telling us that there is something amiss. There is something amiss, either outwardly or inwardly, that needs understanding. Certainly the ingredients for bringing about any form of change in our lives are awareness. Another ingredient is vision, a vision of our own being and a trust in that being. Another ingredient is energy, because if we don't have energy, we don't have the capacity to actualize change. We don't have the capacity to nurture within ourselves. Instead, if there's no energy, we find ourselves constantly being overwhelmed and being overpowered by the variety of impressions and conditioning that we're exposed to. Spiritual maturity is concerned with freedom. The path of coming to that spiritual maturity also means untying the knots of spiritual conditioning, which can be very, very subtle, but no less destructive than any other form of conditioning. Spiritual maturity is coming to understand what it means to establish a spiritual home within ourselves. Certainly, spiritual maturity is not a proficiency in meditation techniques or, or a sound knowledge of spiritual philosophy or of religious philosophy. Spiritual maturity is establishing a home that comes through connecting inwardly with our own resources and with our own capacity to be aware. And it's a maturity which is nurtured through looking at our conditioning, through being able to discard any form of conditioning, be it social or spiritual, which is false, 
and to nurture all of that which is true within ourselves and within our lives. So near the mark of true spiritual vision, the mark of a real true spiritual path, is that it is based upon our own experience, it's based upon our own understandings. That it's not in any way involving denial or rejection, that our spiritual path embraces the totality of ourselves and affirms our trust in ourselves. And the mark of any real true spiritual path is that it is one which in actuality, in the present, is bringing about the end of suffering and the end of conflict. And dealing, coming to spiritual maturity does mean dealing with conditioning because there's no way that we avoid dealing with conditioning. Conditioning on every level because we can be sure that patterns of relating, patterns of seeing, patterns of acting, that we find in our relationships elsewhere in our lives, that those patterns and tendencies will be transferred to spirituality. And spiritual conditioning is one which influences our spiritual vision of ourselves. Some people would say that the two concepts of spirituality and conditioning are concepts that are contradictory. Yet if we look at any path of spirituality that has any sort of history, we see that those paths of spirituality carry with them certain models, certain authorities, certain values, and certain goals. And when we come into spirituality and explore the path of spirituality, we meet those models, we meet those values, we meet those goals, and they make an effect upon us, they make an impression upon us. And if those impressions are adopted without question, without real exploration, then those, that adoption becomes a form of conditioning, a very subtle conditioning, but a very real conditioning. It's not in any way to negate the history of tradition or of authority because we probably, many of us, found in our own practice that we've derived a great deal of benefit, but it is to recognize that there is such a thing as spiritual conditioning and that it does make an effect upon us. When there is a spiritual heritage, to look at this, just to explore it a bit, then there is an authority. Often what happens is that the authority passes on the heritage of spirituality. And in that passing on to people, then that authority, often in the minds of those practicing, becomes the model, becomes the model of who we're aspiring to become, becomes the model of what the spirituality is all about. And obviously it happens. When we begin in spirituality, we don't necessarily have an inner wealth of spiritual experience to rely upon. So we do go to authorities quite naturally. And we look to the authorities for answers, for direction, for inspiration. And yet often we also adopt values without question. And it's very easy in the path of spirituality to become really locked into the role of a follower. And being not in the sense of, you know, this is my guru, this is my path, 
but locked into the role of the follower in terms of, yes, this is the goal, this is the path, this is the way I practice. And becoming locked into the role of the follower means becoming locked into the role of a believer. Unless that element of inquiry, that element of questioning is really nurtured and encouraged. And it becomes very difficult to establish a spiritual home within ourselves which is based upon our own experience and our own understanding if we adopt without question values, authorities and models. And in not being able to establish that spiritual home, it also becomes very difficult to, to discover and realize our own inner freedom. And different authorities certainly present us with different visions of spirituality. Hmm? We'll go to one spiritual authority, perhaps looking for some way to freedom, some way to wholeness, and we may be told that everything's out of our control, that you know God is in charge, and all that we have to do is to have faith. We may go to another spiritual authority who will tell us that basically all of our conflicts or our problems are a result of the past. And basically what we have to do is somehow work the past out or erase it. We may go to another authority who will tell us that all of our problems, our conflicts, our, our, our limitation is because of our clinging. And that authority may tell us, well, you've got clinging, the path of asceticism is the way to follow. You know, reject, deny, destroy the self, whatever. If we adopt that conditioning in any form, we create a knot within ourselves. The knot is not inherent in what we hear. The knot is in our relationship to it. The knot is our, in our adoption without question. Untying the knots means very much looking at the influence of our models. And this teacher thing is a big one. It's a big one that many people have a lot of problems with. We have a model of what the teacher should be, or look like, or appear. And often our model of a teacher, you know, they've got the uniform. And how many, uh, several times, I mean, this is absolutely, <laughs> I, I've come into a retreat where I've met someone who's come to do a retreat with me. And, um, you know, I'll be with someone and they'll say, uh, oh, is Christina here? And someone will say, oh, yeah, this is Christina. I say, oh, really? I thought you'd be bigger. <laughs> or or I, I, I thought you would look much different than how you are. Or I thought you would look like this. And, and I see there has been times when I've taken off my own particular uniform, and this year I even cut my hair, and people don't even recognize me. <laughs> and we have this perception of what our model of what a teacher is. And it can seem sort of ridiculous. We can say, no, no, we don't have those images. And yet so many people find themselves confronted with the uniform or the particular correct presentation that fits in with their models. And it immediately very strongly influences their relationship to that person. And certainly our model of what a teacher is very much influences our openness, our willingness to learn, our, our capacity to be with. And so often we, our models, unfortunately, tend to be one which are very static. If we adopt 
any of that conditioning without question, it essentially becomes a blind spot. Mm? It becomes a kind of very, almost an unconscious truth. And so many things in spirituality can become almost adopted, unconscious truths without our being aware of it. And we find it in the West, and we certainly find it if you go practice in the East. You know, that there just are these blind spots that are taken for granted as being part of the path of spirituality. I remember once I was in Thailand and in a staying in a monastery, and other people come, you know, with glowing stories of their times <laughs> in monasteries in the East. Well, I have my whole catalog of horror stories of, of my time in monasteries in the East. Anyway, in one monastery, I was invited to give a talk. Would you please give a talk? You know, they heard I was teaching meditation in India. Would you like to give a talk? I said, sure, I'll give a talk. And then the problems began. Because women don't stand up to give talks because they're higher than the monks. So the problems began. <clears throat> Would you mind standing in the corner where they can't see you to give the talk? I said, yes, I do mind standing in the corner. <laughs> Would you please sit in the abbot's kuti and do it over the PA system? No, I won't sit in the abbot's kuti and do it over the PA system. Would you do a tape and then we'll play it tonight? No, I won't do a tape and we won't play it tonight. I don't mind. I don't care if I don't give this talk tonight. <laughs> Fine with me. So finally, they, I said, if I'm going to give the talk, I'm going to stand up, give the talk, like everybody else gives the talk. So they agreed, and this was a great breakthrough in the history of this monastery. Uh, it probably had very little effect, because afterwards, and nobody listened to the talk, everybody was, what's he doing up there, standing up above me? <laughs> that is a kind of blind spot, that that is the truth, that is the way things are, that is your place, my place, my image, your role, your identity all very much related to our models, all very much an expression, a more obvious expression of spiritual conditioning. But spiritual conditioning <coughs> gets much more uh, subtle than that. Some of the conditioning that takes place in spirituality gives rise to certain value systems that are taken for granted spirituality. Now often there is rela this relationship to meditation in which meditation is perceived as essentially being a path of intensity and misery. <laughs> now many people have this relationship to meditation. Note that it's, it's hard work and it's, it's heavy and at times it's really, really very miserable. And often, the more that you suffer, or the more miserable that you are, is equated with the depth that you're reaching in meditation. <laughs> that kind of equation comes from a particular value system. It comes from a value system which places particular associations and judgments upon other, some qualities as being worldly and hindrances and negative, and gives values to other qualities as being holy or higher or more spiritual or, or more enlightened. Those values give certain division, obviously. 
When we find in our own practice that much of what is taking place within ourselves falls within this negative category, of course meditation becomes very miserable. It becomes miserable simply because we have values placed upon certain experiences in meditation and because of those values we form a certain relationship to them. We form a relationship where we have to get over things, cut through them, overcome them, transcend them, whatever. And when you look in spirituality, what often carries that negative value or that value of being worldly or a hindrance or, or unwholesome, then what the areas are that often carry those values are essentially relationship, feeling, emotion, body. They are, and uh, interaction with the world, actually often the world in general. That is often falls within the category of being hindrances of being worldly, things to get over, things to overcome in some ways. When we have that negative value system, then it's very easy to cultivate a kind of path of aversion or a path of rejection. Often what we reject are feelings that are taking place within us. We may reject our desire for relationship. We may have aversion to bodies. We may have aversion to our feelings. This is a value system which certainly gives a particular impression of meditation and it's a value system which creates limitation. And I'm not saying that it is what the Buddha taught. I'm not saying that it is the path of Buddhism or that it is the path of meditation. But it is certainly the way in which both Buddhism and meditation are frequently interpreted. And the reason, one influence in that interpretation is certainly the impact of cultural conditioning cultural conditioning from the East, which is transferred to the West, often without question. When we see so much apparently inferior or worldly stuff happening in our meditation, then it's very also easy to feel that all of that stuff that's happening, our relationship to our bodies, our feelings, emotions, are basically preventing us from being enlightened. And so it's a short step from aversion to rejection, where we may have a relationship to the world where we basically see it as empty, something to get out of, where we may try and cultivate a relationship to the body, where the body has that label, particularly in Buddhism, as being loathsome. We may cultivate or find ourselves involved in some sort of relationship to feeling where they are considered to be a hindrance or something to get over or something that we will get over as we go deeper. And so often in that value system, it's forgotten that it is a value system. And so often we can be so quickly buying into it that we, and, and finding ourselves tied up in the knots of it that we don't even question whether that value system has any intrinsic truth to it. And we don't even question whether that value system in itself, our own approach to spirituality, is one which is suffocating our own freedom. There's nothing inherently spiritual about sitting on a cushion. <laughs> Just as there is nothing inherently negative or loathsome in a tree, in a sunset, or in your body. That is all values. It is all assumptions. It's all conclusions. 
and yet assumptions and conclusions which have, can have a tremendously destructive effect. When a path of meditation becomes a path of rejection or a path which is based on judgment and value, then essentially what happens to meditation is it does move from the heart to the mind and meditation becomes a judge of what is. It becomes a judge of what is rather than an appreciation of what is. It becomes a way of evaluating what is, comparing it, judging it in some way rather than being fully open and learning from what is. When meditation becomes a judge of what is, we may find ourselves suddenly responding to the sound of a bird or a child. We may find ourselves sitting outside looking at a sunset and find ourselves really appreciating it. And if we bought into a value system which carries these judgments, we may suddenly find ourselves doubting our own responses. Am I attached? Am I clinging to that? Is it, am I getting very worldly? Is this a somehow some sign of becoming less spiritual? We may find ourselves judging our own worth by the number of hours we manage to log on a meditation cushion, by our capacity not to connect. And these kind of inner judgments take place if we feel ourselves doubting if we feel ourselves doubting in some of these value systems, if we feel ourselves doubting in some of these assumptions, we may feel, well, this is really my problem. Hmm? If we bought into them as being a truth, if we're tied up in that knot of spiritual conditioning being a truth, then we might find ourselves doubting ourselves. Oh, I feel doubt or I feel question. It must be my problem. It must be my difficulty. I just have to go deeper. I have to become more accepting or I have to surrender more. And then spirituality becomes also a path of invalidation of our own being. It becomes a path of invalidation of our own responses. And it becomes a path of invalidating our capacity, basically, to trust in ourselves. Sometimes spiritual development, when it is very distorted by spiritual conditioning, is equated with the power to invalidate oneself. And sometimes this striving for selflessness gets equated with being able to invalidate oneself. And then spirituality becomes a real hindrance in terms of inner freedom, in terms of coming to inner wholeness. Because it's almost as if we somehow have to become empty of anything that any response, any connectedness, any feeling is somehow a sign of self rather than seeing that all of that can also be a vehicle to real connectedness in which the more destructive elements of self simply dissolve. It's not enough to blame authority or to reject spiritual tradition when we see the presence of spiritual conditioning. Because somehow within ourselves, we also perpetuate that invalidation. Because we have a whole history of conditioning that leads us to doubt in ourselves, to blame ourselves, to look at upon our, our own responses as not being true or as somehow not being worthy. And so when we meet a higher authority or a modern spirituality, our own conditioning buys right into that. 
And through our own conditioning and the belief in our own conditioning, we perpetuate that inner invalidation in which our own spiritual potential is suffocated. Untying the knots means learning to listen inwardly. It means learning to question in a creative way. It means nurturing our vision in ourselves and trusting in that vision. And the ingredients for spiritual wholeness and spiritual maturity are really nurturing that trust. Learning how to listen, how to be open, how to benefit from the whole heritage and richness of spiritual tradition, but also learning the power and the importance of our own understanding and our own experience, and nurturing that in a very real way in our practice, in our way of seeing, in our way of being, which means looking at the past. It means looking at the present. It means looking at the way in which we experience ourselves in the present. It means looking at what we trust in ourselves trust in in the present and it means looking at where we direct our energy in the present recognizing that there is really nothing in this world of more significance than knowing that sense of wholeness and freedom inwardly and it's through that wholeness and inner freedom that we are able to really make a gift of real love and sensitivity and compassion to the world May all beings live with receptivity. May all beings develop in trust. May all beings live with awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.